Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Donna Rasquat-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Mark Van Montague, president of the European Federation of Biotechnology and former professor of molecular biology at the University of Ghent, talks about his life and career with Joanne Corey, professor of plant molecular and cellular biology at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Dr. Van Montague recounts how he went from studying chemistry to discovering the gene transfer mechanism from agrobacterium to plants, which opened the door to gene engineering and the creation of transgenic plants. Through the European Federation of Biotechnology and the Institute of Plant Biotechnology Outreach, of which he is the founder and chairman, Dr. Van Montague is now dedicated to educating the general public and informing political leaders about the necessity of using science and plant engineering to prepare a sustainable future for the planet and its growing population. This is Joanne Corey at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California, and I am here today in my role as guest editor for the annual review of plant biology. It's a great honor for me to have this conversation with Professor Mark Van Montague, from the Department of Plant Biotechnology and Genetics and the Institute of Plant Biotechnology for Developing Countries at Ghent University. Mark is talking with me by Skype from Belgium. Together with his colleague, Jeff Schell, Mark Van Montague discovered the gene transfer mechanisms between agrobacterium and plants, which turned agrobacterium into an efficient delivery system for genetic engineering. This enabled scientists in the field of botany and brought the study of plants into the era of modern plant uh, molecular biology. So good afternoon, Mark. It's good to see your face. No, it's a long time that we saw each other, really. Yes. yes. Let me start by saying to you that you're one of my scientific heroes, so I'm absolutely <laughs> delighted to have this time to hear from you directly about the I will change of the color. plant biology field. And you're from a working class family, and I wanted to ask you, how did your family influence your scientific life? Or did they? Well, they did it by just not interfering, <laughs> by thinking that uh, if instead of playing on the streets with the children, I was in a corner with a book and whatever it was that I was reading, it, that was good. <laughs> and uh, huh. that was all. And, uh, that's the, and always when I thought that instead, after after 12, I wanted to go to secondary school. No, why not? And then, and then at the end of, of secondary school, that when there they say that maybe I should go to university, that, that they did the effort uh, to, uh, really to make it possible to, uh, that I went to university. Well, it was cheap, so it was possible. And in Ghent, uh, the inscription fees... It, in money of those uh, times, that was maybe uh, some hundred dollars or so a year. So that was not a. Uh, yeah, it's what the University of California used to be, but we're not that anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you um, ended up um, studying chemistry and then moving to agrobacterium. Oh, but that's a long way because already in the high school I was fascinated by chemistry. And so uh, I was uh, uh, reading uh, Aerosmith and uh, 
and other books already. And uh, I thought that I wanted to have a laboratory, but I started in even uh, in the attic when I was in uh, at high school. So logically, uh, chemistry then. What I found intriguing was organic chemistry, and from organic chemistry, you hear that there is something like biochemistry or chemistry of the living organisms, and that's how it started. But that wasn't a field of study when you were studying it, right, biochemistry? Well, not really. Uh, in Belgium, uh, there were some interesting people, like St. Georgi was in Liege, in the, because he had to run away uh, from fascism in Hungary. Uh, Levi Montalcini uh, had to run away from Mussolini. So the, there was some, mostly at Liège, but also in Ghent. Uh, there was a beginning at Ghent University. Teaching of biochemistry uh, started really uh, during, uh, in '39, and then mostly after the war. But was a lot uh, linked with what the Biochemistry in Liège was where I said Sven Georgi, Levi Montalcini were there. Uh, in Brussels, we had Brachet at the ULB uh, and Brachet for cell biology with Chantren. That was were international level, very high level, because actually they, for the first, broke uh, the story that. RNA was for plants and DNA was for animals. Yeah, they showed that, uh, th that was a basic. So the uh, the teachers I had, the professors, all were trained by Brachet or were influenced by Brachet or this group. So there was a good atmosphere for cell biology. And later on in Belgium, with the Duve, cell biology went on, uh, at the, and Claude, but two Nobel Prize winners, uh, went on rather well. So... Uh, that indeed was a good base, and then that made that afterwards we started immediately uh, in the world that will be called molecular biology. That was then, uh, and I, uh, the undergraduate was finished in '55, and then was still working on the structure of RNA because it was not known if it was a two-five or a three-five link in RNA, uh, and. That was interesting. It was done, uh, well, we'll not go into details, but with physical chemical methods, because the, uh, there was ways, they call it dilatometry. So uh, if an enzymic reaction goes on and there are charged molecules that are formed, then you can have very small volume reaction. So in a thermostatic bath, you can have then, if you keep the enzyme with the substrate, then you can see the kinetics of the reaction. That was the beginning of life. <laughs> and then okay. we went to RNA phages uh, with Walter Fears because we were students in the same period. Uh, Jeff was some years younger, Jeff Shell, uh, and he was in biology, and he did microbiology and taxonomy of microorganisms. Uh, but Fears and I were, were interested in the phages, in the phage world. And after the in the late 50s, we had quite some visitors who talked to us about what uh, a certain Luria and Delbrook had done and what was happened in Cold Spring Harbor, phage yeah. world. So we were really... We had nobody to teach us that. And then Walter Fierce went to Caltech, to Sinsheimer. 
and he was the first one to prove uh, circularity of phi x174. So that was, uh, and so immediately when he came back, we started together on RNA phages, and it was the beginning of the genetic code. Uh, then we started also synthesizing the triplets, but competition of Corana was a bit hard. <laughs> it was too good. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, and then uh, at the late, at the end of the 60s, uh, Walter Fiers had decided that he wanted to start sequencing, sequencing RNA and DNA, but all with capillary columns and uh, with gel methods and eluding. It was very, but he succeeded, and we ourselves, we thought, well, let's go. Uh, ask some biological questions and since everybody was around the late 60s switching from prokaryotes to eukaryotes so we thought why not studying why a bacteria is able to induce tumors on plants Uh, but with the idea that well cancer being cancer, cell proliferation, a cell cycle will be always the same so maybe what we find in plants can be useful we really believed it. We told it to granting agencies, and they believed it, luckily. <laughs> so that, that allowed Jeb and I to start, and we said immediately that we would uh, fusion our, our labs because it's, it's the result that counts and not the persons. Or the, and that, was, that remained the spirit of, so that of sharing everything and then trying just because we felt extremely isolated. We were fascinated by the states, the quality of the graduate schools. So I agree, my, my first period, in, uh, my first trips in the states, that was to Watson's lab in, at Harvard, where all the people were who found uh, RNA polymerase, the promoters, the, all the basic things of molecular biology were done there. So we felt very, very uh, tiny uh, and we thought also that it was the system of all these seminars, uh, good graduate schools that the top people were immediately teaching. And so we have no courses in graduate school. You just read. The libraries are there. You so it's it's printed there. So you you should know it. So the agrobacterium story in in the early eighties and late seventies involved several labs working at high speed to uncover the mechanism of agro transformation of the plant. So um, I think competition can be really motivating. It can uh, move a field at a fast pace and it corrects errors and misinterpretations quickly. And how, I mean, how frequent were the new discoveries coming out of the groups? Yes, about... There was a group in Seattle, St. Louis, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, So in the beginning when we started, we were convinced that it was uh, an extra-chromosomal factor. So it could be a virus, because we were always working with phages. Uh, apart from RNA phages, we, uh, we both had worked on phage lambda, so lysogeny, uh, phage P1. So we knew about uh, genomes that also can function as plasmids. We followed the antibiotic-resistance plasmids, so we were absolutely studying all what is as extra-chromosomal information in microorganisms. Uh, 
and so then try to find what is the the approach and indeed uh, in the beginning well the idea of of jeff was we absolutely have to follow what the others did uh, because otherwise it's too much to start from zero all alone so we took uh contact with Leiden because Skilperot had published a lot already in the 60s. Uh, well, it was a bit uh, adventurous what he has had published, but uh, okay, the, so that was the contact with Leiden. And Jeff thought, we, we don't know anything about plants. Well, probably we still know very much, very few about plants, but uh, uh, so surely we will not grow. Uh, and in Holland, they are specialists in plants, so we, we have to do that with Leiden. So we were working uh, together with them, but uh, at home uh, we were then looking if it is an extra chromosomal DNA, maybe we can purify it. And if it is a plasmid, well, it should be supercoiled. So, uh, with the just with ultracentrifugation, ethidium bromide, because uh, it will work. Because Vinograd at the end of the 60s uh, had l started that, so that's what we wanted to do. But it had to be done very carefully, uh, because it's turned out to be a 200,000 base pair plasmid, and most of these other plasmids are just small circles of DNA. And as soon as you have a nick during the preparation, of course, you have an open circle and you cannot show it anymore. And there was a faint band. And at the, in the 60s, I had learned electron microscopy and Kleinschmidt spreading. I had gone uh, to Geneva, uh, well, where, where, where Naraba was, but uh, there, there were also a lot of specialists in electron microscopy there. So I learned these techniques. I used it in phage lambda. So we then immediately started and could see the circle. In uh, Seattle, uh, the person who was doing there, uh, most of the plasmid uh, studies, Stan Falco, who is... I think he's, he's still at Stanford at the moment. Eh? So he uh, he was there doing... And uh, people from uh, Seattle, uh, Gene Nestor uh, and Gordon, uh, went to Leiden instead of coming to Ghent to hear how how sure it is that they have this plasmid. And they send them... They, they give phone calls because it's a story Stan Falkov told me uh, to Stan Falkov. They have this plasmid. You should be able to see it also. But they never told him that it was 200,000 base pair plasmid. So Stan Falkov didn't find it. <laughs> so so that's, a, that's the kind of rivality that made that we had a good start and could have the journal Molecular Biology publication. Also there, was we were lucky because... Um, when we when we sent in the paper, nobody wanted to referee it because they don't understand uh, why it w would be important, and so it ended up on the desk of the editor in chief, Sidney Brenner, and Sidney Brenner thought it was interesting, so he decided to publish it. <laughs> in this first paper, we just said that the strains that are non-oncogenic do not have a plasmid. The ones that are oncogenic have the plasmid. But 
Of course, that is not very much. Today, that was <laughs> nobody would consider that a serious publication. But in well, in the early seventies, plasmids were new, and big plasmids were new, and Sydney found it intriguing. Later on, now we know that there is on top even a mega plasmid of five hundred thousand base pairs that is always there. So luckily we missed it, <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't have ever written it. Or so, but that's a, a beginning. And at that moment, a postdoc in um, Gene Nestor's and Gordon's lab, Marie Del Chilton, uh, got very intrigued, and she was really the the driving force because she was very well organized, very hard working. So we couldn't rest; we had to go on. Uh, but l- luckily, we were the first ones uh, to show that you could cure for the plasmid. Uh, and that also was a. We found uh, an obscure publication from a Russian scientist that uh, if you have this bacteria incubated at, at minus 25 or minus 40, uh, uh, and then you thaw and you do that several times, uh, then the, uh, the bacteria become so damaged that they lose the plasmid. And indeed it happened. We call it the Siberian method. <laughs> and that was the way of curing, because we don't have the, uh, the classical ways of, with antibiotics and, or other... Uh, and then for tra- uh, transferring, reintroducing the plasmid, we were lucky that we had the visit uh, from Alan Kerr and that we had contact with Alan Kerr in Australia because he had observed that uh, carefully in his uh, greenhouse that suddenly some tumors that he had introduced with an what's called an octopene plasmid, had the aspect from what is called the one of a uh, nopaline plasmid uh, that is a kind of teratoma plasmid, it's called, because the, uh, it's all kind of cell types and roots come out instead of a smooth tumor. Uh, and he said, but I never inoculated that. How can it be? Uh, and he said, it must be that there is this other bacteria in the soil that I splashed on the wound when I was watering my plants. So probably there is conjugation there. And then he proved that if you wound the plant, mix the donor and the acceptor strain in the wound, and you do you wait 50 days you have to be patient uh, then you can isolate <laughs> bacteria that uh, that conjugated so we took over uh, immediately that method so then we could definitively prove that the ti plasmid not only exists but is resp- trans- uh, responsible for that you know. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, no, no, absolutely. Well, a lot of people laughed with us because you have exactly the same type of tumors if you do crosses between uh, Nicosiana langsdorfia and uh, Nicosiana glauca. I think there, there is what, and that was called genetic tumors, and there is no agrobacterium around, and the aspect is exactly the same. Uh, I think, I don't know if meanwhile somebody has taken it up to uh, really analyze that, but, but that was an, for all plant physiologists sufficient to think all this, uh, these Belgians, we, we shouldn't consider them. <laughs> so. uh, luckily, we were invited at Gordon conferences and we called, uh, we, 
we could talk about the story and Larry Bogorat was interested and a lot of other people were interested. So it was accepted that uh, that it really was, uh, that was the story. But we had to prove it that it was DNA transfer. And in those days we were already was good friends with Rich Roberts. Uh, um, Rich Roberts, Nobel Prize pricing and so on. He was in Cold Spring Harbor working on restriction enzymes. And we had uh, very early access to restriction enzymes because it was important for the work that Walter Fierce did with SV40. So we used it for mapping the TI plasmid and for um, trying to make a, a, a physical map of the plasmid because of these large plasmids, you needed to have a whole set of enzymes uh, there was southern blood didn't exist in those days, eh? uh, so um, we cloned all the fragments and then uh, see uh, if they would overlap. And well, that's a long story. But the most is that we had access to restriction enzymes, and actually we made them a lot themselves on instructions of uh, Rich Roberts. And then the winter, I think of. Uh, 74, 75, I was two months in Cold Spring Harbor for making more enzymes and learning techniques. And in those days, the first manuscript came in from Ed Salton on the Salton blotting. I think it's only published in uh, in uh, 77 or 78, but it, the first draft came in, I think, around... Uh, Seventy-five. I should look up the exact dates of so. So I saw that uh, that uh, this uh, southern blood that would be the the method to go. Maridel in those days tried to do cut curves to show homology with cloned fragments, and there was an enormous work. And uh, and uh, Jeff always had the good philosophy: if it's too much work. Think harder, find another way, but don't waste your time by by doing the work. He said he learned that in 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 the UK that if the method was too long, go back, drink tea, think better, and then it will. <laughs> you can do it with less work. So, what was the chemistry between you and Jeff that made the environment so special? I don't know. We know each other as students. We were the same in the same political, well, philosophical organization that we call it the humanistic. Uh, uh, association uh, that was a kind of well, uh, lay movement of, of uh, humanism and, uh, and taking care for society uh, uh, as a biologist he was very under the influence of the declarations of the Club of Rome how bad the planet is going so uh, I also was a political uh, militant, uh, so we always uh, were close. And uh, so when he became full professor, uh, we, uh, Fierce and I, we had already formed already a kind of uh, lecture club. The three of us at noon we met and, and discussed literature. That was in the sixties. So then, when he came over, we sheltered him. We, we organized the labs and refused the lab. So we, we just did things together. I I went on a little bit with fears on the on uh, RNA phages, the proteins, because as you cannot sequence, you have to uh, to f sequence the proteins. So I started then a protein lab, protein sequencing lab, and uh, at that way 
I could then uh, feed the orders of the oligonucleotides that, that they had, and we were sure that the, the sequence of RNA... So that went in parallel, but with Jeff, we focused on agrobacterium. Uh, and then, well, for all our life, we were further uh, always together till in 78, he became then director in the Max Planck. So he started in the Max Planck and, uh, because he wanted to stay also in Europe. We, we both had offers. Laurie wanted both of us in Harvard and we both decided that we would stay in Europe. We were uh, the winter 75 restriction enzymes. So... When I was back, I asked a, a technician to start doing that. But, uh, of course, I should have been wiser and write to Ed Southern, asking Ed Southern. But we were very timid persons. We, we, we considered ourselves as dwarfs in, the, in this big world of molecular biology. And uh, so we did it ourselves till... Uh, Really, the, this technician was able to do it in '78, but at those days, uh, Maridel also had done it because she also had sent Daniel Siaki to Rich Roberts' lab to use restriction enzymes, restriction fragments, and then do the southern blotting. I remember that uh, Jeff Stratern was very enthusiastic. Uh, but uh, it was never written up, and uh, well, uh, for a symposium number, uh, so, s sorry, a, a symposium book. It was uh, in in the same year. It was published in in a meeting in Angers. Where, but it, that was about at the same time, and then we started uh, seeing uh, if there is really DNA transferred. Which DNA is it? And then we. That's what we call now the tDNA. And then with this mapping that we did of the fr fragments, we said uh, it's just one stretch that is transferred. And I still remember the the sentence of Maridel, nonsense, nonsense. I've never, I, I don't believe it. The week afterwards, she called, you are right. My manuscript is ready. When, uh, when do you publish? <laughs> it was just one week or maybe two weeks because in those days there was no internet. No, <laughs> we didn't, couldn't send mails. So it was written either by telephone or written or so. Uh, but she was very good sport. So uh, she waited till we wrote it up and then it was published back to back in Nature. Or so that, that there was something like a tDNA. And then later on, we found out that the DNA that she sh showed that was transferred was from an octopene plasmid. And that's a special DNA, never know what it encodes. Uh, but it's nothing to see with tDNA. There, in that plasmid, there is another fragment uh, that is, uh, was present in this special line as multiple copy. Uh, and it gives maybe, well, nobody analyzed the natural tDNAs, what they really are doing, what is happening. I'm always complaining to young people that they are not interested in that, that surely there must be something important there. But that's an, again another story. What year, what year was that? Oh, that was 78, I think. 78 or 79, maybe. Yeah. Okay, I, so didn't, I didn't look it up, but there are two. By 1983. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was then uh, a new, uh, really new gene that was in, and that that was then the uh, the canamycin gene that was the first. That was Miami Winter Symposium. Well, it will be exactly thirty years next year. Eh? Yeah. 
in, in 2013, so uh, have some festivities for it. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, January yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that also finally people believed Barbara McClintock, people analyzed that plant genomes were not something stable, so that all eugenetics from the years 20 could disappear because everybody believed in pure races. So at least we saw that all what she had observed, but what's the molecular base of it? No, no, that was a very she important. Won the Nobel Yes, absolutely. Very, yeah. very correctly. Plant biology had cachet, but it seems to have lost it. <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah. work harder, gentlemen <laughs> and ladies. I want to ask you about the current funding climate, and, and especially in the U.S., but I think it might be true for you guys as well, that um, science that is translational is, is much more rewarded than hypothesis-driven science mm -hmm. or discovery-based sciences. And I was just wondering what role do you think discovery or basic research plays in, in the big picture of biomedical sciences? It's crucial. All the innovations come from there. If you if you think about the plant science, all what we want to know further on hybrid vigor, uh, how so many items that will be important. Uh, uh, the, the, all the epigenetic phenomenon that then later on fixes as, as a mutation that are the basis of evolution and in that way understand how you have to adapt when you have stress because everybody wants drought-resistant plants but there is such a, a knowledge that we are still missing. So all this uh, we, uh, we know already at the moment that it will be big complexes of proteins that will do the regulations. We have uh, isolated quite some already, but many more will have to, to be done and, and find out that, uh, by comparing what ha happens in nature uh, and see how can you mimic in the laboratory and then finally understand. No, it's always, always everything comes from fundamental research. But the problem is that the translational research is blocked worldwide. People don't realize it because you see American companies that are successful, like Monsanto or Dupont de Nemours. But what they bring to the market is very, very limited compared to what could be done if there was really uh, intensive uh, science and if the applications were not so expensive. All the regulatory, even for Monsanto, claims that it takes them uh, really uh, hundred and, and several hundred, sometimes million dollars for really going from the uh, the step from the lab to through the whole uh, regulatory process. And don't talk about Europe. Of Europe, there is nothing that goes to to the field, so uh, nobody wants to to invest in it. So at the moment, we are very lucky that we are supported for fundamental research. All what my successor Dirk Inzee does here in the lab is all fundamental research. He can do maybe some contract research for a company, but that's not the innovation that the society will see. Uh, society appreciates that he does fundamental work, so we are lucky. But that will not go on 
uh, more and more. So we will be also in the same stress situation that the States also is, that if if a small, medium company, a, a startup cannot make new novel plants uh, because it's too expensive and, and too insecure how the regulators will uh, will decide then we then we are in problems and i think it's globally that we have to organize that this story stops or so and i'm afraid that it is not rio plus 20 that will do it <laughs> in next month of june where uh, where the yeah. world comes together to say however all these regulations should work it is not for uh, progressing with science that they meet there. It's to make things more complicated. Americans seem to have bought into the genetically modified crops a, a little bit more than Europe. What is, what are the issues in, for Europeans about genetic modification of crops? Well, uh, some uh, people, and that are actually very big and powerful organizations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth started the rumors that uh, GM is dangerous for health and that GM is surely very bad for environment because all biodiversity will disappear. And anyway, that is nobody advantage uh, in the society, that it is only good for the big American multinationals and that we should keep them out of Europe and that Europe should go his own way. And that was about uh, the nonsense that has been said and uh, that was accepted because really scientists thought it's so ridiculous. Why shouldn't do it? Our, uh, our political leaders will do it and our uh, civil servants will explain that it's their task uh, to do politics. Why uh, we are in competitive scientists and those on the other side of the Atlantic are very good, so we have no time to lose. Uh, we will not do the politics. Uh, we believe in our government and in the European organization. They will solve that. But they absolutely didn't, and they, they became also afraid that it was dangerous. And it's, I think it's only rather recent that uh, scientists in uh, uh, public institutions start to come together and, and to to work on it, uh, to communicate and to explain to society that we have only one planet. If overpopulation does so much damage, uh, we have to solve the problems and the best to do it is using science and engineering to solve it and not manifestations or prayers of, uh, or saying we go back to the good old world because... Uh, with the 7 billion we are, it would be a bit difficult. In the States, if you see the Sierra Club and quite some other groups, and especially in California, you have quite some groups who also think that GM is bad for environment. So I always told Nina Federov that she shouldn't uh, believe that the Americans are so superior at that level that uh, it needs some uh, education and everybody can use it. If you see how in the United States the attitude towards the concept evolution is, you know that uh, uh, some well beliefs can be very disturbing for science. So why not uh, that also? Yes, it's true. It, it's, it, it goes across many levels. So I'm, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your unique blend of science and politics and 
You're not the head of the Institute of Plant Biotechnology for Developing Countries. Maybe you can explain to us what the mission of your institute is. <laughs> okay, well, the idea started uh, already 10 years ago, but uh, it was a bit difficult to build it up and to find funding because I fully agreed first priority is have solid fundamental research and that is what my former lab that's now called plant systems biology is doing but already in the 90s because at the end of my career uh, i knew that uh, state support to science if it's democratic it should make distinctions, not too many distinctions, and should be uh, rather distributive, and everybody should have opportunity. Uh, so if we wanted a big chunk for really that we claimed that we were doing something important, find your way to do it. So luckily, at the end, uh, I could convince the regional government, what we call the Flemish government, to set a special institute for biotechnology. Of course, I thought it would be plant biotechnology. Uh, the minister in question was a Christian Democrat closer to the Catholic University, so was very uh, well known in um, medical field. So most of it was the medical field, uh, but plants were a really substantial part from it because that was in the, in the 90s. There was still a, uh, a divide to st between state universities and free universities in, in the Flemish region. So that was, but luckily now it's a, through this uh, Institute of Biotechnology, uh, it was a, a virtual institute. So there is an office, and it is at the universities, uh, some labs that start to share knowledge, share technologies, and work together. Well, we didn't have too much to share because we were the only plant group, uh, but okay, it worked, and then the group developed. But I already saw then that, uh, well, for applications, Life became more and more difficult, uh, more and more difficult in the in the twenty first century. So it, it was needed uh, that the applications also should work for developing countries because there is the highest need. If you see a billion and hundred million people who are uh, either starving or at least malnutrition uh, conditions, so at that moment. We have to see, can science uh, stimulate better governance? Because it's, of course, uh, uh, better conditions for living and for income that they need. Uh, but can we help with science that they would have a better income and, uh, and influence that authorities would have an interest if they suddenly see it doesn't have to be the traditional uh, what can we do? So that was the early steps, and later on, we saw that also in Europe, with all the action against GMOs, that over whole Europe, these these methods were not uh, progressing very well. So we think that uh, the task of IPBO will be really plant biotechnology outreach to a, a larger group of people uh, than normally the multinational companies do because at the moment the applications are six major companies who do it or so. 
Dow Dupont de Nemours, uh, Monsanto in the stage, BISF Bayer uh, uh, here and Syngenta, uh, three here and three there, although most of them do still do their work in the United States. Now BISF, Syngenta are very active in North Carolina and so on. Uh, and so try to do the outreach here and, and see that in that way, by example, uh, the mildew-resistant potatoes, or so the uh, Phytophthora infection, people understand immediately that it is an advantage. At the same time, if we can help for the bananas in Africa or for the atropha, that are a kind of crops that people can understand that and the technology and the knowledge exist, can it be done? And so now we are very happy that Brazil is progressing very well with their own uh, GM constructs and that they recently what they deem, did with beans. It's a, a million uh, farmers that will have an advantage of that. So we see that by in increasing our cooperation with Brazilian universities and this stimulating the application of the science uh, together that we will be in the in the good direction so that is the uh, what we consider as our mission see that it uh, this fundamental science uh, sees that it can be applied so that they can be uh, su subsidized and that they can do uh, uh, still go, go on in doing this competitive uh, uh, high level fundamental research course of your career, you must have trained hundreds of students and postdocs from all over the world. I know they came to your lab. And so I was wondering, what is your advice to a young scientist today in 2012? Well, it's the same as always. Enjoy what you're doing. See that it is important. Uh, talk to people. Ask questions. Never believe anybody. And ask questions again and again. Don't be too pushy, but know that you have to go on and mostly learn to work uh, with your co-workers and really find a group that have a good spirit uh, and then the whole group will advantage because humans are social animals and we sometimes ignore it that we are like that. Our biology is like that, our neurobiology is like that and in that way we will use the best of our neurobiology to find the solutions of the problems. Please. I want to thank you uh, for leading such an inspiring life. <laughs> well, we'll see, I, I, don't, I didn't stop yet. So, but, uh. <laughs> You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquet Paz. Thanks for listening.